The idea that 5G is wireless, I mean, once you get your connectivity to the access point, it's effectively a wireless solution, which means that we can deploy and you know, we can expand and contract rapidly using things that are completely wireless. We've had Emmy premieres and other things in which 5G was the backbone. For listeners tuning in for the first time, welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And if you joined us for season one, then welcome back. I couldn't be more excited to kick off another great season. I've spent more than a decade really learning about technology, what makes it tick, and then describing and explaining that to my audience. But it's the conversations with the world's most unconventional thinkers, the leaders at the intersection of technology and business, that fascinate me the most. In partnership with T-Mobile for Business, I explore further the unique set of challenges that CIOs and CTOs face in setting their organizations up for success. From advancements in cloud and edge computing, software as a service, Internet of Things, and, of course, 5G, we are often left wondering how the leading minds in business continue to thrive in a world of complex organizations and ever-changing technology. And what are they looking forward to tackling next? Let's find out. Our guest today is Ted Ross, the Chief Information Officer of the City of Los Angeles, California. Ted's early career was in the private sector, but since then, he has dedicated his attention and efforts working at the city government level. That means he oversees projects that serve not only the more than 40 city departments, but also the businesses and residents of Los Angeles itself. Working in the government sector comes with its own set of unique challenges, but much of Ted's work translates to all industries, public or private. How do you identify which technologies have the most promise to deliver value? How do you get buy-in from various stakeholders? How do you juggle ongoing projects while also looking toward the future? These challenges are universal, and Ted's approach is one I find compelling. I'll leave it to him to elaborate. Ted, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I greatly appreciate your time. Welcome to The Restless Ones. Excellent. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And before we dive into your leadership philosophy and how you tackle problems in your role as CIO of the city of Los Angeles, I thought we'd take some time to learn a little more about you. So can you talk at first about what drew you to the world of technology in general? My dad was an aerospace engineer and he worked for Aerospace Corporation. So I remember us having a Timex Sinclair T-1000 at the house. You type in a game, you couldn't save it because it had no internal storage. Then once the TV was turned off, you'd have to turn it back on and type the programs back in. Then fast forward to a Commodore, uh, fast forward to Apple II Plus and 2E and 2C and move your way to an IBM 286 where VGA graphics were fantastic. So I've always been around technology. Yeah. So what was your first job? I was a telemarketer for a political office. Telemarketing is a tough job and trying to sell people super tough. It's a little bit easier if you're trying to sell a candidate, but it was a Michael Wu for Secretary of State campaign. And I remember it helped improve my speaking ability, but it was grueling. And in just a three or four hour shift, you'd always walk away with a huge headache. I imagine that those communication skills are, are one of those uh, cornerstone skill sets you have in your role as CIO. 
at the time I couldn't have appreciated it, but now all these years later, I'm very glad that I was always put through a trial by fire, whether it was giving system training classes or whether it was just cold calling people and try to get them to either vote for a candidate or donate to the campaign. It really does improve your ability to get a point across, especially something as complicated as technology. So what led you to become part of the team at the city of Los Angeles? How did you join that group? I believe in mission-driven work, and I made a decision after 9-11 to work for government, and I ended up at the city of Los Angeles. I really, I'm born and raised in LA. I'm a homer. I'm a Lakers fan. I'm a Dodgers fan. I fall right down the obvious, you know, stereotypes. But the reality is I really do like the idea that when I come to work, um, for all of its challenges, I'm trying to improve technology for the people of Los Angeles. I do find that motivating. Hmm. What was your career path then? What what was your sort of entry-level position with the city and and how did it lead to the point where you are today? My very first job was actually working out of the Department of Airports, so working at LAX, which was super cool because my dad worked at Aerospace Corporation for 25 years and they're both effectively in El Segundo. So it was nice to kind of spend time working in a place that my dad spent all his years. But my entry-level job was actually accountant. And so I ended up working with their financial system group and very quickly ended up supporting and running teams that, that run the SAP system at the airport. Cool. And I assume there were several steps between that and CIO. I don't imagine the career path goes straight from there to CIO of the city. No, it does not. If it did, I think the city made a terrible mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I made a career move to move downtown. I joined the team at the controller's office for the implementation of their ERP system. And you can see the trend here, a lot of ERP early on, um, which means that if you, when you think of your stereotypical ERP, you understand business processes well, you're a big fan of business management as well as technology. After spending some time in the controller's office, I joined the IT agency, which was honestly a department in crisis at the time. It wasn't necessarily the fault of the people working there, but it was just a lot of staff were put in really bad positions and the piece of the puzzle just weren't working together at all. And then with the departure of the CIO, I became CIO. So I, I jumped around across multiple departments, um, mainly coming in from my, my systems implementation experience. I imagine at the city level, you can't do the move fast and break things kind of approach that you typically hear about at Silicon Valley. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. You know, I spent seven, eight, nine years in private sector before joining government. So I, I very clearly remember that world. But then at the same time, I've been in government for about 20 years. And so uh, and I spent a lot of time trying to kind of bridge the two wherever possible. In fact, honestly, if you were to ask me and say, well, Ted, you know, who do you see, who do you look to when it comes to innovation or good strategy? I don't say other governments, you know, generally speaking, other governments are, are in a, in, in a terrible state. They, they're very slow to implement new technologies. When they implement technologies, they're often using what's existing on contracts, which is the worst possible reason of why you choose a vendor, or they, they know a guy or they know a girl. And so these aren't the right ways to implement it. So you're entirely right. There's a lot of, of bad press regarding governments and technology. And it's not always coming down to individuals. Like I mentioned before, I was always surprised how experienced and how capable a lot of the individuals were. 
But the systems that they operate within sometimes are really, they're not just antiquated, but they could be dysfunctional at times. And so really one of the benefits of when you're the boss is that you can't control everything, but you can certainly try to influence a whole lot of things. And so as CIO, I have spent considerable time just in the last couple of years in things like employee hiring and procurement and a variety of different topics that really aren't my shouldn't be my core competency, but they make, I think, a really big difference. So, you know, there's a lot to be said about how you innovate in government. Uh, And honestly, there is no better place where innovation impacts more people. Um, If I worked for a private sector company, quite often I'm, I'm innovating to sell a product. And that's cool. But when you're innovating in government, you're innovating to save someone's life. You're innovating to empower people. You're, in, you're innovating to bring someone onto the internet who hasn't been on it before. So there's a lot of like super cool, in my opinion, you know, reasons why innovating in government is as important to use case as any. Oh, sure. Yeah. The impact is enormous and it spreads across millions of people who depend upon those services. I'm fully on board with that. And uh, you kind of touched on this already, but if someone were to ask you to describe your job, how do you typically do that when you're talking to someone who may not really have a a grasp on what it is that, that you do? Yeah. Some of the worst questions to me is, what do you do? Or what are your top priorities at work? Because when you kind of get underneath the surface, you realize it's a complicated question. So you try to give a simple and straightforward answer and the, and people deserve one. At a high level, I help manage technology at the city of Los Angeles. That's the high level. And so what does that mean? Some of it's very traditional. You know, we run a data center, we run the network so that city employees can connect to the internet. We run enterprise applications and websites and social media. Uh, I run a TV station of all things in my group. You can see behind me, we have an Emmy over there. Um, So there's all these different kinds of broad responsibilities of what we do. But it also means that not just supporting and maintaining these systems, but innovating and building on them. So the ability to roll out a, you know, a Webby-nominated website so that actually allows residents to enter their address and see all the resources and what's happening in their neighborhood, or having teams that build out an Alexa skill or a Google Home skill so that people could actually talk to their Amazon Echo and ask what the city's doing this in this upcoming weekend or building chatbots. So there's a lot of really cool beneath-the-surface items, as well as, of course, all the frustration. We have to manage budgets. I've got a, a team of 465 people. There's just a lot of stuff that we end up doing that covers so many different customers. And so there's never a dull moment. It's very interesting, but it could also be a certainly a challenging role at times. And I think, you know, COVID certainly tested our mettle. Ah, and we're going to touch more on that in a little bit. And you, you mentioned that you have a team of 465 people. It also, I think, benefits listeners to know the size of your customer base, not just within the city itself and the other departments that rely upon Uh, your leadership as far as managing technological resources. But then you're also talking about citizens of Los Angeles, as well as the people who visit. Can you kind of give us an idea of the scope? Yeah, it's terrifying at times. (laughs) I say that jokingly. Um, So 465 people is a whole lot of folks, but we spread them across 19 different divisions. And like I said, a TV station, a 301 call center, network, data center, apps, enterprise apps, websites, public safety communication. So all those handheld radios that a firefighter or police officer carries, those come through my staff. So the customer base is quite large. 
When it comes to servicing other city departments, that's 43 city departments we service who have a total of 48,000 employees. Then when we think about the fact that we don't just service city employees and city departments, we have a lot of very public-facing services. We serve 4 million Angelinos. We serve over 500,000 businesses who call Los Angeles home. And then pre-COVID, at least, we had 48 million annual visitors. And so we have to deliver innovation and, and technology across all these customers. And, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating challenge as to how you do that and where you prioritize. But the reality is I can't just say, well, I'm only focused on employees and I don't care about businesses. And I can't say, well, I only care about businesses and who cares about residents. The reality is I really need to move the needle every year in all these different areas. And not only does it mean that I'm gauging different customer bases, I'm also engaging different business partners in the city. So I'm working with the Department of you know, Recreation and Parks when it comes to children trying to sign up for you know, park, uh, park classes, or I'm working with libraries, or I'm, you know, we're on digital inclusion, or I'm working with public works when it comes to fixing potholes and receiving requests to our 311 mobile app. So there's a whole lot to do, uh, and never, never a dull moment, and never, never a time to sit and rest on laurels. Well, and, and you've given talks about Los Angeles and its incorporation of different smart city technologies and solutions. And uh, one of the presentations I saw you do was tackling something that I think a lot of people associate with Los Angeles, which is traffic. And just you look at what would the situation be without the technological solutions that are in place and you realize, wow, this is a very complicated problem and something that you don't necessarily see when you're in the middle of it. There's a couple of themes in my career. When I work for the controller's office, the controller's office is associated with money. So every time I work with someone, they said, well, it has to do with money. So that's your job. And I said, no, no, everything has to do with money can't be my job. That's too big a job. And then when I work as a CIO, they say, well, it has to do with technology. Therefore, it's your job. And you go, I can't be responsible for every possible technology and every you know certain aspect because it's just so ubiquitous. And I think that's the reality of it is when it comes to something like traffic, it's not entirely my job. We have an entire department of transportation, but we do work very closely with them. And technology plays a huge role in how LA manages traffic. We're a huge city. A lot of people move in here. Uh, traffic is always difficult to manage simply because just the volume of people and everyone wants to have their own car. But with that being said, we have something called ATSAC, the Automated Traffic Surveillance and Control System, which, believe it or not, has its foundation in the 1984 Olympics when they started to digitize and automate, which was first in the nation at the time to do it at that scale. But then, you know, fast forward 30 years, and now you've got technology, which we've got 30, 40,000 loop detectors that know when a car is waiting for a traffic light to turn. We have got 2,500 intersections that you can control if you want to with a laptop. We don't, but we run all these various algorithms. So if a president is visiting, if there's traffic on Wilshire, we can try to go ahead and change the lights on Olympic. So there's all these things that we do, which do tremendously improved traffic in Los Angeles. But we are always fighting against the idea that there's a lot of folks with a lot of cars who live in the west side and work in the east side or vice versa. And so we're always working to manage that. Hopefully in the post-COVID world, we can leverage better you know, multimodal transportation and even just people working from home to try to help improve that. If there's one thing most businesses can agree on these days, it's that change has never come about so quickly. New ways of working have become the norm. As a result, 
the status quo no longer cuts it when it comes to helping businesses adapt and innovate. That's why T-Mobile for Business uses unconventional thinking to help businesses work smarter and grow faster. Only T-Mobile offers America's largest and fastest 5G network. It's just one reason they're better able to help businesses solve the real-world challenges they face as they evolve. For instance, their new WFX solutions help team members stay connected and productive where work happens. With nearly two and a half times the network coverage of AT&T, nearly four times more than Verizon, and $40 billion invested in network and business improvements over the next three years. T-Mobile for Business is better for your business right now and into the future. See what they can do for your organization at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional. Open Signal awarded T-Mobile fastest 5G network based on average speeds. USA 5G user experience report January 2021. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some users may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. It was clear to me that Ted had a unique set of challenges as the CIO of one of the world's largest cities. With 58 counties, 482 municipalities, and hundreds of employees serving the needs of all Californians. And with all that responsibility and weight on his shoulders, I was curious to understand his leadership style and how he tackled the challenges of the job. How much of your job goes into just balancing priorities. I would imagine that you are looking at so many different factors whenever you're considering an implementation of new technology. It has to be pretty overwhelming. I've learned a lot. And you're now hearing experienced 2021 Ted and not Ted from five years ago. But one thing I've certainly learned is, first of all, to have a North Star. And and for us, our North Star is going to be the residents, the businesses and the visitors. So that is just, you know, full stop. Those are our top priorities. And so when it comes to a customer focus, those are the most important customers. So even when we're servicing other departments and other city employees, it's always in light of adding value to that North Star. Secondly, we have to juggle a lot of lists. So the mayor's office has lists. They come in the form of executive directives or mayor's office requests. And then there's a list of items that we as a department know we should be doing that no one has asked us to do. I think quite often governments ignore that. They just, quote unquote, do what they are asked. So what we do at my department is we have something called the list of lists. So we take all these lists and we merge them all together and we're frequently going through them. We're using metrics to see for initiatives that we're working on. We're, we're doing project management. There's all these different kinds of things we do so that we can help prioritize, focus, and deliver. Uh, at any given point, we're juggling 190 to 210 different projects uh, as a department, and we're closing a lot of them out, and we're getting a lot of new ones. And so it, it is it is always a challenge. And I think one of the ways we focus it is we try not to prefer one stakeholder over another, but we try to keep the needle moving among all stakeholders. That definitely sounds like there is a lot on your plate. So then I, I'm curious, uh, what sort of challenges do you typically encounter when you want to do an integration of new technologies? I assume you have to get buy-in from multiple different parties in order for that to happen. Can you talk about what that is like for you? Or is there just no universal approach that you can touch on? The reality is you've got to bring coalitions together and you've got to have teams of people 
you've got to have allegiances among elected officials and finance people and HR folks, et cetera, which does mean that quite often you're making multiple extra passes to try to put the ball in the hoop. But that really is the nature of working in government. And it's not, I, I, I love the old quote, and it says, it's not about great ideas, but it's about making great ideas happen. That is execution becomes an extremely important part. So quite often what I find is, let's say I'm building stakeholders among other departments. I'm really looking into their mission and their purpose. When you have 43 different departments, they all have different missions. And almost none of them, their mission is to create an integrated user experience for somebody. So they may appreciate the concept, but when push comes to shove, they're going to be focused on their constituency and their very specific mission. So you're often selling mission and trying to kind of get buy-in into their mission as a part of a technology experience. When it comes to employees, it's a completely different thing. Sometimes you have people who are married to a certain proprietary ecosystem. You know, they've been trained in Cisco and they don't want to touch AP or they've been trained in Fortinet and they don't want to touch. Cisco. And so sometimes you have just these very fundamental things when you're impacting someone's job and you want to go ahead and help make improvements on something and you're often getting them to buy into that. But what do you quite often find is if you work with a group of professionals, if you can start to create the sense of urgency for change, if you really show how the status quo is really failing an important group of people and you can show a clear path as to where we need to go, often people will start to buy in. And then it requires oversight. It requires actually making sure that people haven't dropped the ball. And so, yeah, being a CIO in many organizations involves execution, especially in government. And I imagine that is complicated by the fact that we live in a democracy. The leaders can change frequently over a period of like a, a, a decade or 12 years. And so does that make it more challenging to make further long-term plans, not really knowing who's going to be in charge perhaps another four years down the road? It does. It, it really does. And so take, for example, where I stand today. You know, I serve under Mayor Eric Garcetti, and I'm confirmed by city council. And I've got a city attorney that I pay attention to and a city controller. So that's 18 different elected officials, very intelligent people, men and women, who see the world in a very different way and have their own perspectives. Our mayor... Uh, he ends his second term next year. And so it affects the way I think the mayor's office operates. It doesn't mean I should change and maybe slack off. It's nothing like that. It just means that they're doing things to close up their term. And I need to pay attention and keep in mind of not just what they're doing, but also making sure that there's a good transition. Uh, one of the benefits is I may be a political appointment, but I worked in civil service for 15 plus years. So I'm very experienced and very aware of kind of the transition. I served under multiple controllers and multiple mayors, et cetera. You know, where there's a transition of power, there needs to be a smart transition of good technology. And that's why when we discussed our list of lists, there's priorities that the mayor's office provides, there's priorities that council provides, but then there's also a list of priorities that what we know as tech professionals. And so no one asked me to implement Drupal. We did it. And no one asked me to implement ServiceNow for ticketing and service management. We did it. These aren't things that we asked anyone either permission for or their advice on because we knew that this would improve our ability to be able to roll things out. We didn't ask permission for the cloud. We just started taking hardware refresh and started reallocating it so that we could start moving workloads up into the cloud. And we have 240 plus workloads already, a lot of SaaS systems and others. And so we're making that migration. So there are there's a balance of doing what you're told and doing what you're asked, as well as trying to do what you know is right. And hopefully you get it right. And if you get it wrong, you fail fast, you learn, and you migrate to something else. 
And so it, it really is a challenge when it comes to the long term. So we often are thinking in the world of one-year plans, two-year plans, three-year plans. We're not really in the world of 10-year plans. Smart cities is a bit of a, of, of a difference. CIOs all over the world have the tough job of trying to explain sometimes very complicated technologies to different stakeholders in order to get buy-in. Do you have your own approach to this? Because you start talking about things, and we'll mention more about it in a minute, but like blockchain, for example. That's one of those topics that if you're not really technologically savvy, it seems like it's magic. So yes. how do you go about that? I knew you were going to blockchain with that one. First and foremost, I'm full of analogies. And I never intend walking into the room to use the analogy, but next thing you know, it pops off. And I'd say most of the time, it's a pretty good analogy. Sometimes it's a terrible one. But I was recently in a budget discussion in which we were discussing, you know, because of the economy, where we should make cuts. And the analogy I used was I said, listen, if we were the kind of organization that always bought a new car, then maybe we can kind of float maintenance for a while because the car is new and we know it'll last. But if we're an organization, let's say on server infrastructure, network infrastructure, where we know we have a lot of old stuff, you can't cut on the money that you need to keep those things going. And so I said, so if you have a used car and it's been around for seven, eight, nine years, you don't eliminate funding that's needed to repair that car because repairs are going to come up. That's the cost of having an older car. And so it's just a classic analogy that a lot of people can identify with because they know the idea of owning a new car versus owning a used car and what it means. I just don't think most folks relate it to, let's say, network infrastructure. And that's that's the analogy that we used in that one. And honestly, it just came out spur of the moment, but I'm full of analogies. When it comes to something like blockchain, boy, that's a difficult one because it is a level of automagical you know, solution when it's all said and done. And so all you try to do is break things as classic systems analysis, break it into its pieces. You know how you keep a record here on this database? Well, instead of keeping a record on this database that we own, there's a different database and it uses a complex algorithm to make it work. You've seen it with Bitcoin. People aren't stealing Bitcoin all the time. So that's how blockchain you know, effectively works. So you're taking it, you're really boiling it down. But the reality is, is once you've boiled it down, They'll kind of understand it. They'll often fact check you a little bit. Quite often when it comes to technology, your reputation is extremely important. And so they look at you and they say, well, I trusted you on smartphones and I trusted you on early, you know, early earthquake warning. Uh, I'll trust you on this one. So having a reputation and building a level of trust with your stakeholders is important because things go wrong. You know, there's data breaches there's you know server failures there's network outages they need to know that you're upstanding you work hard and you're you know capable before those things happen so they can trust you as you're resolving them there are a couple of things i really want to talk about one of them is how impressed i am at the city's ability to pivot in the wake of the covid-19 pandemic being able to go from a more centralized approach where people are coming to specific buildings in order to do work, to working from home. From my understanding, it sounded like it was a pretty rapid deployment to go from one to the other. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Yes, it was. And I can't help but smile, both at a sense of a great appreciation for my teams and what was accomplished, and also kind of a smile of let's not think about how traumatic the whole experience was, right? Uh, but I'll never forget, it was the end of February 2020 when the CDC was saying it's not a matter of if, but when. Then we all started to realize it was going to be a global pandemic. At first, there was the question of, well, do we take people who are maybe uh, you know, over 65 and they telework? 
little did we realize how fast it would become everybody teleworking for a long time. Um, so what we did was I sat down with the team. This is early March. And I said, okay, if we're going to have to telework 15,000 people, how would we do it? Everyone's eyes roll and everyone oscillates. Because up until that point, we really had about 35 teleworkers in a city of 48,000 employees. And the initial answer was, well, we can take our existing solution and try to scale it out. But it didn't take but five minutes to realize that that was a terrible idea. Everyone's going to unanimously hate it. I'll never forget one of our managers says, well, Ted, they can't expect us to deliver all the functionality they have at work at home. And I said, oh, no, they expect it. Let, let, you know, don't, don't get it twisted. The idea of them being sent home and flailing is not an acceptable answer. So what we did is we, we worked with cybersecurity, network, apps folks, uh, and some others. And we very quickly were able to stand up a solution in which we had a very robust remote desktop protocol. We started to implement strong cybersecurity with two-factor and other things. Because we had to stand up identity management, you know, remote access, a long list of things to make sure that everyone could access as many apps as possible from day one. And then lo and behold, March 19th, safer from home order, everyone is sent home. Within 72 hours, we had 10,000 people teleworking. And then about two weeks later, we had 18,000 plus people teleworking. And there were so many lessons learned in it. It was so dramatic, so fast. All the stuff you learn with agile software development, all the stuff you learn with user-centered design, we had to do it and do it very quickly. And most governments don't do it very quickly. And I think, you know, it is one of our, our, the fact that we had so few issues is one of our proudest achievements that we'll never forget. Now having a deeper understanding of Ted's leadership style and philosophy, I really wanted to dive into what he thought about emerging and maturing technologies and how the city of Los Angeles is implementing solutions relying on those technologies. I'm curious what the city of Los Angeles is doing along the lines of incorporating apps and services in the 5G infrastructure world. Are you exploring that? Yes, absolutely are. Huge fans of 5G for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, as a government, our role is to help, you know, facilitate the deployment of 5G. And that's one of those things that directly a city government like ours can implement. So we've already had over 2,500 5G access points. We were the, one of the first uh, large cities who had 5G. And we're in the process of, of implementing, and I say implementing, it's allowing and facilitating the implementation of 5G uh, of, of another 3,000 access points in the next three years. So our ability to fast track permitting, to come up with standardization, to keep costs low so that companies can, can implement 5G in our urban environment allows it to be accessible for businesses, residents, and others. So that's like first and foremost, one of the greatest things government can do is to facilitate the implementation of it. But when it comes to our use case, of it. Like there's so many great options for it. So, you know, quite often when you have an old city like ours, technically our city was founded in 1781. So you can imagine we have old streets, old sewers. We have a lot of old infrastructure that just comes with a large old urban environment. The idea that 5G is wireless. I mean, once you get your connectivity to the access point, it's effectively a wireless solution, which means that we can deploy and you know, we can expand and contract rapidly using things that are completely wireless. We've had Emmys and Star Wars premieres and other things in which 5G was the backbone. 
you didn't have to go and roll a bunch of wires out. You already had ubiquitous 5G connectivity at up to gigabit speeds, and they could run an entire venue, roll out VR wirelessly, roll out communications, you know, do all these huge multimedia aspects that take up a lot of bandwidth and do so completely wirelessly. But as a city and as an organization, there's all sorts of use cases. And I, and I honestly, I liken it to early internet. When I think about early internet, I think about all these, all this upside and people not really knowing what to do with it, but then introduce e-commerce, introduce social media, introduce these use cases that take this technology that had these, you know, blue background, yellow text, you know, HTML, you know, websites that someone goes, what's the benefit of this? The, to then now have these, you know, rocking and rolling organizations completely built on it. So I think of 5G that way. And for the city of LA, you know, a great example comes down to things like, you know, sanitation trucks. We have sanitation trucks in which we've added cameras and those cameras can actually pan. So if you imagine a sanitation truck drives the entire city every week, there's a sanitation truck driving around picking up people's trash cans, covering probably 80 to 90% of the city. So instead of me waiting for a resident to tell me that there's graffiti on a wall, what if the sanitation truck camera could identify it for me, Right. So instead of this pull approach, what about a push approach to city services? That's transformational. And, you know, it's not just transformational. It has tremendous effect on equity. So we often know that, like, disadvantaged neighborhoods are less likely to tell the government that they have graffiti or they have a pothole, et cetera. Well, why wait for them? Why, why always benefit the, you know, the, the wealthier communities who are very aggressive and very, you know, love to advocate for the neighborhood? Why not identify the pothole, identify the graffiti using computer vision off a sanitation truck, you know, connected to the cloud through 5G, where I'm moving mass amounts of data, but I'm leveraging machine learning and AI to be able to do the type of computer vision required to make sure that that is truly graffiti and not something else and do so in a secure way where I'm not violating people's privacy. Those are the kinds of things that 5G starts to enable. And that's like a, a, a pardon the expression, that's a badass concept for a city to be able to actually unilaterally understand where its issues are and be able to start to assign those resources without a resident ever having to complain or tell you about it. Oh, absolutely. You don't, again, you don't think of city government as necessarily being proactive in those cases. It's usually reactive. So having technology enable the ability to be proactive, to start to address problems before perhaps anyone even has the opportunity to report that there is a problem, that is transformational. And yes, it is. Previously, you you mentioned the Olympics and how that had a big role in uh, the the early implementation of technologies that changed how traffic management is done in the city of Los Angeles. I imagine that means that we're going to see a lot more technological innovation than how high band frequency 5G can deliver such incredible experiences. And to me, the Olympics would be the one of the perfect places to really showcase what that technology can do. Is that something that the city's been looking at as well? Absolutely. Um, uh, now, I'll put in the disclaimer. Every Summer Olympics says that we are the most technologically advanced Summer Olympics to date. And of course, because every four years technology moves. So yes, the, they said it back you know, in 96. They'll say it in 2028. But with that being said, if you think about the year 2028, 
you're thinking about a time frame in which autonomous vehicles will have much more traction. 5G will be ubiquitous. Augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, AI, machine learning, all these technologies will have had not just been introduced, but have much more maturity. So I really do expect the 2020 Olympics to be something completely next level. Uh, and so what do you see it? We see it in two areas. One area is actually running the Olympics itself. It's creating this fantastic experience for the people who fly in, let's say. You fly into LAX, you are, have a concierge service that helps you get to your hotel, it helps you get to restaurants, you're being pushed coupons if you're so interested, so they can help incentivize going to one restaurant over another. You're you know, doing your tourism, you've got this complete digital experience to help you navigate a large city of 469 square miles, as well as get you to and from your venues, contactless payment, single payment methods that whether you're using Uber or a city bus, you can use the same app to be able to make those things happen. So there's a long list of these tremendous benefits that help the event itself. But I have to hand it to Mayor Eric Garcetti. And he said, listen, it's not just about the event itself, because that comes over the matter of a few short weeks. It's really about the legacy that's left after the Olympics. After the 1984 Olympics, most folks don't know that the Amateur Athletic Foundation created this, this grant in which something like almost a million youth have had free youth sports because of the money that was invested in and came out of the 1984 Olympics. And so, you know, 800,000 plus people, including many of which young girls who are traditionally often aren't incorporated into youth sports, have had these tremendous opportunities. So when we look at the 2020 Olympics, we're not just focused on the Olympics themselves, but what is the legacy that we leave? What is the infrastructure, the fiber optic infrastructure, the 5G infrastructure, the applications, the digital concierge, these things that we can use for the Olympics, but unlike some other countries, we don't just abandon it right after the Olympics are over, but we continue to parlay that. That's a great answer to that question. I live in Atlanta, so I look at the 96 Olympics and how that helped transform the city I live in. And I think about the uh, the technology we have today and how that could have been such an enormous uh, boon to the city, both during the Olympics and beyond. And uh, it just makes me wish that we had been further along. But now we live in a different world where yes, we do. We just we get those constant notifications that we can act on and we can implement and have that make an impact in our lives. So I find this truly exciting. And I love the fact that you're talking about infrastructure that does have utility beyond a truly phenomenal event. I don't want to downplay the Olympics, but something that has utility beyond just those couple of weeks in a summer. So that's very exciting. Yeah, I'd say it's good to deliver good technology for the event, but it's great to deliver technology that service the event and services over 4 million people or over 48 million visitors thereafter. And, and when you work in government, I'm a taxpayer. I don't want to spend money on something that's throwaway. That's not how government needs to operate. I need to be able to incorporate things that really will provide utility and value because people are paying their taxes for it. We all know that in the world of tech, there's always one more thing. So here's the one more thing I wanted to ask Ted Ross. What's the best piece of advice you would share to your peers? Uh, I would say, you know, understand your government, understand your organization, and then understand what private sector is doing with technology, and then make that that crosswalk. There's so many great things that private sector companies are doing with technology, and it's not because they have a bunch of money, it's because they understand, they get it. 
they have a philosophy. They understand what technology means and what and what it means to be digital. So cross apply that into government, and you don't have to bring their budgets with you. You can leverage a lot of things they do that are actually pretty low cost. So that would be my advice to my colleagues. Ted, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, and I hope the folks listening to it find these kinds of topics interesting. One thing I have come to appreciate as I've had the chance to speak with tech leaders in business is how valuable communication skills are when it comes to doing your job effectively. Yes, you need a good eye for technology. You need to be able to envision new approaches to old problems. You need to be able to pivot quickly when issues arise. But you also have to do all of this while maintaining delicate connections between different departments, divisions, executives, and customers. Those are lessons that apply across the board, no matter what sort of organization we're looking at. Thank you for tuning in to The Restless Ones. Be sure to subscribe to the show as we will be having conversations with forward-thinking leaders throughout the year, learning what makes them tick and what it's like to lead in a world that is in a constant state of change and evolution. I've been your host, Jonathan Strickland. These days, new ways of working have become the norm, and the status quo no longer cuts it when it comes to helping businesses evolve and grow. That's why T-Mobile for Business uses unconventional thinking to help businesses seize innovation. Only T-Mobile offers America's largest and fastest 5G network, which makes their new WFX solutions possible, letting businesses stay connected and productive where work happens. See what T-Mobile for Business can do for you at T-Mobile.com slash unconventional. Open Signal awarded T-Mobile fastest 5G network based on average speeds. USA 5G user experience report January 2021. Capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some users may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. 